But I want to start today with something about me. Uh, at the time of dating my wife, I had an 83 Honda Accord. This was the ugliest car you probably could have ever seen. Its fender was barely hanging on. It had multiple dents on the front, on the back. It looked like it had gone through a plachinko ball. Um, but this car was just horrible. It, I had a bungee cord that I used to keep the hood from flying around. Uh, but I also had multiple internal things going on with the car. For one, it had horrible oil leaks. It couldn't hold more than six gallons of gas because this, it had a hole in the gas tank. It didn't have any power steering. It didn't have any AC. It didn't have a functioning radio. And it didn't even have a, a heater. And yet, I drove this car for like three years. This car was the definition of a beater. But in spite of all of these problems, I would find that this car would occasionally surprise me. One particular afternoon, I thought it would be a gr great idea to race my wife down Knob Hill. <laughs> um, we, we got going pretty fast, and we were having a lot of fun. We were even we, we, weaving in and out of cars. And uh, we had about 10 minutes of fun, and then we were pulling up to a red light, cars are stopped, and we're just so excited to just hit, have the light turn green. And then all of a sudden, our hearts sink. Next thing we know, there is a cop that pulls right into the turn lane, and he commands both of us to pull over. Um, he asked me how fast I was going, and I said, I, I, I don't know. It was fast. Uh, but he was gracious. He was gracious, and he gave both of us tickets for only $130 um, just uh, for just going. He said he, we were going five over. Uh, but there was a difference between my wife's ticket and my ticket. Hers was $130, while mine was $650. Uh, because the car was a beater, I didn't prioritize putting insurance on the car. And so... The, I, uh, hindsight was a bad decision, but I proceeded to have even more bad decisions going forward. I led Debbie to believe that we had the same tickets. Didn't tell her about my lack of insurance. And looking back, I didn't want to tell her the truth because I thought that she would think less of me. I thought that she would be, uh, I, I, out of fear, I was ashamed by my secret, so I, I held this down. I feared, I was afraid that she would, she would break up with me because we had only been dating for a few months at that point. So through all of this, uh, anytime that she, we would talk about the tickets, I'd be vague, I'd change the subject. I didn't want to talk about the fact that I didn't have insurance on this car. Obviously, with any form of secrets, they eventually became known. And what Debbie was, Debbie was profoundly hurt by me holding back on this secret. She was more hurt that I would hide this from her than she was that the fact that I didn't actually have any insurance. And so I learned that hiding secrets is hurtful or is more hurtful than the original action. And so I think about many others that we do this something similar, that when we do something wrong, rather than own up and confess to it, we, we hide it, we cover it up, we do everything that we can to make the action not, uh, we, we try everything that we can to, to hide it. As we cover up the truth, we put this facade that 
everything is okay, that everything is put together, that nothing is wrong. Eventually, we become worn out having trying to keep track of all of the things that we've told the people, all of the lies that we have spun ourselves. And so we also just keep people at a distance because we think that if people know the truth, if they know what actually happened, then they will think less of us. You see, all of these secrets lead to tremendous guilt and shame that we are not experiencing the joy and the happiness that we had previously. And so through this, we tend to self-medicate the pain that comes from this guilt. We turn to alcohol, we turn to drugs, we turn to relationships, we turn to everything that we can to ease the pain that we are experiencing. What ends up happening is that we make a mess of our lives trying to get rid of the pain and the guilt, covering up our guilt and our shame. And so we really need something else. But what if there was a way for our guilt to be gone? What if there was a way for us to be free from the guilt and the shame of our poor decisions? Sometimes it almost seems that our, the, the being free from our guilt is, is impossible. Now, this is why I love reading about people in the, in the, throughout Scripture that we find that all kinds of men and women make a tremendous mess of their lives, yet they find something in common. They find restoration and redemption. And through this, they're able to find joy for their lives. And this is why we are in our summer series this, uh, this summer, which is the, through our summer in the Psalms. And through the busyness and traveling and the hustle and bustle of our life, it's important for us to slow down and to reflect and contemplate on who God is and how he offers us joy and peace for our tired and weary souls. Today we're in Psalm 32, and this psalm is written by King David, likely as a, written as a response to Psalm 51, where David confesses his sins to God as an attempt to hide his sins, but they eventually get caught up to him. And so this psalm is likely a response to that, where he says, I will teach people your ways. I will teach transgressors your ways, O Lord. But the thing about this psalm is that he calls it a masculine. And this basically means to impart or instruct wisdom. And so he uses this psalm to teach specific lessons through his personal experience, how he understands sin, how he understands grace and love, and also forgiveness. And so David is urging that we don't make the same mistakes as him, but rather that we find enjoyment in God. So the first lesson that David wants to teach us is the joy of a right relationship with God. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. As you'll see in verses 1 and 2, he repeats the phrase, blessed is. And so with this double statement, he's basically saying, oh, how the unending abundance joy that we get when our sins are forgiven. He is emphasizing the tremendous blessing that comes from being forgiven. He is a man who intimately knew of God's grace and love on his life, and he wants us to experience that same joy that he had with the Lord. But this experience of God's forgiveness came as a result because he first had, or he had firsthand experience of the results of his impacted sin. 
So he uses three words to describe the severity and the, the seriousness of sin in verses 1 and 2. The three words are transgression, sin, and iniquity. And so the idea with transgression is that it is an open rebellion against God. He is refusing to submit to God's rightful authority, giving the limits of human behavior for our good and for the good of society. So when we go against what God has decreed, we transgress against him. The second word that he uses is sin, and that means to miss the mark of God's holy standard. So transgression looks like a violation of a specific or known law, and sin always falls short of the aim that God has intended us for us to reach. And then the third word is iniquity, and this means that our thoughts and our behaviors are, have a bend toward wickedness. It brings the implication that we are intentionally perverting what is right or true through our actions and through our thoughts. And so what David is saying by using these three words, he's saying he is a sinning, sinful sinner. Every way that he thinks and acts and behaves, he is a filthy, no good sinner. And that is his disposition. Every way that he lives constantly is sinning or transgressing against God. Every way possible, his relationship with God is completely broken by sin. He says the same thing in Psalm 51, verses 4 and 5. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So he's saying, I am a sinner. I have done, I have transgressed against God. I have sinned against God in every way possible. But while he is acknowledging that he is a recovering sinner, David highlights something greater than his sin. In these same two verses, he uses three words to explain what God is doing to cover his sin. The first word is forgiven. It signifies a lifting of a burden or a payment of a debt. This burden of guilt is removed through God's forgiveness. And the second word is covered. It carries the idea that the sacrificial system covers his sin, that uh, the blood of another has covered his sin. Meaning because of the sacrifice of another, the offense of the sin is covered. It is paid for. It is gone. The transgression against God is removed, unlike our own efforts to cover up our sin. Then he uses a couple words on this one, and not counted. This word carries the idea that God is not counting or accounting our sins on our behalf. Our credit is wiped clean. This is bookkeeping language. The cost of sin is no longer on our record, and it's not charged against us as a person. So God's forgiveness means that all of the mistakes, all of our sin is wiped clean. There's nothing left of our sinful state. Where sin used to be counted and credited against us, now righteousness is credited and counted towards us. Regardless of what we have done, whether it is great or small, forgiveness of sin can only be found in God. But this blessed uh, forgiveness only comes as one result. We must be honest about ourselves, about the nature of our personal sin. David ends verse 2 in saying, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David is showing us that the secret, this double life of sin is no longer something that he wants part, 
that he doesn't want to experience anymore. This forgiven life is no longer anything that, that needs for deceit or warrants deceit that we need to cover up our tracks because we should have nothing to hide for, before God and before others. And though David still wants to teach about the pain that comes through sin, he still teaches, uh, he teaches another lesson that the lack of joy through unconfessed sin. Verse 3, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. See, the now forgiven David looks back at a time when he was in sin, when he refused to acknowledge that his sin was a problem, and he did everything he could to cover up his sin, to keep his sin a secret. The more that he tried covering up his sin, the more that shame and guilt followed. You see, David is going to tell us that sin leads to physical and emotional pain, and we can see, uh, we see this pain languishing in his sin. He put stress on his body and his mind. It was the long-term effect of sin led to tremendous emotional and physical pain in not only David's body, but in our body. David basically says that he aged significantly while he was trying to keep his sin hidden from the people and, and from God. What is the specific sin? If it's based off of Psalm 51, then it was when David was, was slept with a married woman and had that married woman's husband killed. And he spent a year hiding that sin, hiding it from himself, hiding it from others. And this led him to becoming old and tired and feeling oppressed by the guilt of his sin. David is saying this is what sin does to our mind and to our body. The longer that we have unconfessed sin living in our hearts, the more that it's going to wear on us physically and emotionally. David goes on in verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. What David is teaching us is that God constantly convicted David for his sin. God is not okay with any sin, whether it's small, whether it's great, because all sin is an affront to everything that God is. It is an affront to who God is. It's an affront to his holiness. And so David understood this misery came because of unresolved sin trying or coming from him trying to cover up on his own. And so he compares the sinful state to extreme heat, something that we should all be familiar with over the last couple of weeks. It's, he says that as the heat saps our strength, our motivation, our appetite is all gone. Any form of desire is removed because of the extreme heat. David is saying even more so is what sin does to us constantly when we refuse to acknowledge and deal with our sin. See, David is saying at that point in his life, his life was without joy. He was under the constant weight of guilt, of sin, and he wasn't experiencing the fellowship and the intimacy with God that he had previously. So David is saying that the cost of sin was greater than the act of sin. That his relationship with God was broken because of his sin. And so this is what sin does. It separates us from God's presence. It seeks to destroy our lives and destroy everything that we hold dear. 
And so David is urging us to heed his wisdom to not hold on to confess or unconfess sin. He wants us to seek forgiveness. He wants us to seek restoration, to be blessed with a relationship with God. But it kind of raises a question for us. How do we actually receive God's blessing of forgiveness for us? David answers that question by teaching uh, yet another life lesson, and that is the joy of deliverance. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You see, for David, it started by acknowledging the destruction that came from the sin that he knew no way to deal with, no way to cover, because the more he tried to cover it up, the more it became known. And it wasn't until he was able to confess and repent his sins to God. And this word repent, it simply means to turn from our sin and to turn to God. David got to the point in his life where he was unable to adequately deal with his sin. And so he, he repented and he confessed his sin. Confession simply means that we are agreeing with God about the nature of sin. When we agree uh, with God about sin, we reject sin. We find it repulsive and we find it easier to turn away from it. And so this is where we need to be, as David had gotten to this point of confessing sin. But after David confessed and repented his sin, he, we find the most beautiful thing in this psalm. The end of verse 5, And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, David did nothing to deserve God's forgiveness. David didn't earn his, God's forgiveness. David didn't have a debt that he had to pay off, that he had to work for to be forgiven. It simply says that David, there was nothing that David could do to remove the sting of sin from his life, yet he received God's forgiveness immediately. That is a message of hope for us, because at the point of confessed and repented sin, all guilt is gone. All shame is, God, is gone. But think of the relief that David must have felt at that precise moment that his guilt was gone. It's like jumping into a pool of cool water on an extremely hot day. It's like the relief of pain after medication sets in for a headache or for whatever else is causing us pain. Yet David's relief was not just instantaneous, it was long-lasting. All of his pain was washed away immediately. The relief of having your burdens lifted like a balloon filled with helium as it floats. David was no longer under the burden of his guilt and shame. And it was in that moment, that moment that David received deliverance from, for forgiveness. And he was set free from his oppression of sin. Why? Why was he freed from his guilt and his pain? Because Jesus is the one who forgives his sin. Through taking all sins on himself, he is the one who covers the cost of sin with his life. He is the one who credits our account with his righteousness so we don't have sin counting against us. 
He is the only way for deliverance from sin. And it is through Christ that we are able to have a joyful life with a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father. We come to Jesus because he loves, he loves us and he cares for us. I love what Dane Ortland says about this. He says, consider what all this means. When we sin, we are encouraged to bring our mess to Jesus because he will know just how to receive us. He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl and scold. He doesn't lash out like many of our parents did. He loves us in the way that is just what we need. He deals gently with us. God's forgiveness, God's love is an immediate act that we don't have to do anything to work for. We don't have to go to church more. We don't have to read our Bible more. We don't have to be with the people of God more. These things are good for us, but these things do not earn us God's love. If we have this picture, Christ is constantly holding his arms open to us, inviting us to come to him, to pray to him, to pursue him, to seek him. We are able to experience a life free of guilt, a life without constant shame, and able to have a joyful life in Christ for all those who come to him. In light of God's offer of forgiveness through Christ, verse 6, David says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. All throughout the Psalms, we get this picture that God is near the brokenhearted. God is near the oppressed. God is near those who are lowly, those who are down in their spirit. And all Scripture tells us that we have these promises that God is with us and God is near us when we come to him in humility. When we seek him, he is found. When we ask for him, he answers. When we pursue him, he makes himself known. He is near to us in times of our trouble. Not only are we forgiven, but we have the blessing of God's presence in our lives, and he can be found through prayer. But we don't just have these promises of God's forgiveness. David gives us promises of God's presence in verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Because of God's presence in our life, we have him as our refuge. We have God's protection in our life. We are all surrounded by God's love. This is what we get when we are forgiven by our sins. We don't have to strive for God's love more We just have to rest in God's love more. David is saying that our lives are blessed not just because we're forgiven, but because we get the full access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. We see the same thing in Hebrews 4 when we are told to come near the throne room of grace. That is something that is profound. Before Christ, nobody had access to God the Father, except for one man, one time a year, for just a short time. That was the Day of Atonement. But now, because of Christ, we have access to God the Father through prayer 24-7. That access is open. We have God's presence with us. This is a greater blessing than being forgiven, though being forgiven is a tremendous blessing in in its own right. 
We have full access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. We not only are forgiven, but we also have God going, being with us as we go through trials, as we go through temptations, as we go through difficulties in life. We have God's power living and residing in us at all times. We come to Jesus because he's the only way to deliver us from our sins. He's, we come to him because he's gentle and lowly of heart. He does not treat our sin like we would expect other people to treat our sin. He's loving, he's caring, he's compassionate. But he's able to heal, he's able to restore, and he's able to fill the void left in our lives because of our sin. David knew and understand this deep love of Christ, and it causes him to make it easier for him to confess his sins to God as they come. David had complete and total assurance that he was forgiven by God immediately. He didn't have to hold on to any of these things. Like David, we can have that assurance that we are forgiven when we come to God in humility, when we acknowledge and we confess our sins. And what brings David to what he's wanting to teach us today, that is confession of sin leads to a joyful life in Christ. God offers us this forgiveness and this freedom from sin for those who pursue him. Making our sins known to God allows us to be able to experience the fullness of God's love through his son, Jesus Christ. We are able to be free from the oppression of drugs free from the oppression of pornography, free from the oppression of anger. We are free to obey God joyfully. Christ wants to bring freedom to all of us. But it all starts with us confessing our sin to God, which is to say the same thing about sin that God does. When we confess our sins, we have a joyful life in Christ. This is the promise throughout all Bible. This is how God sets us free from our sin. Not only does David want us to experience freedom from sin, but David wants to teach us one final lesson this morning, and that is the joy of obedience. He says in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Verse 8 shows an interesting turn in David's psalm. Now David, rather than speaking to us, He is speaking as God to us. He's speaking for God in this in these first couple in these in verses eight and nine. And he's telling us that God wants us to joyfully obey him. And when we do, we find three promises that God gives to those who are obedient to him. The first is that he instructs us, meaning that we learn who he is from his word. He teaches us the way that we should go, meaning that God intimately guides and directs our path in our life, our career, where we're going to live. And then we also find God's counsel, that he is near us in our affliction, in our pain, and our sorrow. This is the Holy Spirit ministering to our spirit, that we have a blessed, and we also have God's blessed eyes on us, watching us, being alert with us. I get the image of, of watching children, just God watches us as we watch our children um, um, play and enjoy, and we find delight in just watching our, our kids being our kids and having 
a good time. Even more so, God is watching us. God is intently loving us through, through guiding all of these things. So we are able to delight in God's love, which surrounds us at all times. But David knew that he was incredibly stubborn. Look what he says about himself. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle, or it will, only, or it will not stay near you. If you've worked with horses and mules, you know that it takes a considerable amount of work and training to get them to do what you want to do. They're not easily guided. They don't just come out of their mother and they're ready to be, uh, uh, ready to be ridden, ready to be worked. They need work. They need to be invested in. Um, so much like my Honda Accord, it took considerable amount of effort turning to the left or turning to the right. And so David is saying, uh, he's, if we're not joyfully obeying God, he is going to do hard work in our lives to make us useful to him. So David understood this. Again, in his period of unconfessed sin, he was like a stubborn animal doing what he wanted to do. Yet God brought severe trials and afflictions to humble David, to get him to see the folly and the destruction of his sin. As his last words here, David says, don't be like me. Don't be stubborn. Don't be so set in your sins that you can't, that you, you, you're trying to cover up all of these things. Instead, he says, confess your sins and have a joyful life in Christ. What sets Psalm 32 apart from other psalms of confession? David is not burdened by a weight of sin. David is not uh, he, he doesn't have massive amounts of guilt weighing him down. There is, I don't think, any sin that David is actively hiding in his life. This is him reflecting back on this period. This is him writing from a place of a restored relationship with God. This is a man full of joy, and he is experiencing tremendous freedom from sin. Some of you may be thinking, my life is too messed up. I've done too many things in my life. I've, I've hidden my sin too long that there's nothing I can do to receive this forgiveness. So, you know, that, that, that sounds good and all, but there's nothing that I can do to, to free myself from this sin. And you're right. There's nothing that you can do to free yourself from this sin. But we also have to look and see who wrote Psalm 32. David did. This was a man who slept with a married woman, murdered her husband, covered it up for a year, and pretended that nothing happened. Yet he is called a man after God's own heart. Looking at David's life, I, I would say there were far more heinous things that David has done than I can think of a whole lot of other biblical characters. But still, God says he is a man after my own heart. Why? He was called that because of how he dealt with sin when it was exposed. He confessed and he repented, though often not as quick as he should have. But the same promise is true for us, even more so, that regardless of what has happened in our lives, regardless of how we have tried to self-medicate, regardless of how we've tried to cover up our sin, we are able to experience freedom through Christ 
and it is Christ who paid the cost for our sin. We don't pay the cost for our sin, but the thing about Christ is that he is waiting with open arms for us to come to him, for us to pursue him. Matthew 11 says that, um, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, all who have made a mess of their lives. Come to me, all who have sinned horribly, and I will give you rest. I will give you peace. There is no one too sinful for Jesus to love. There's, no, there's nothing too broken for Jesus to fix. If he can create the world by the power of his mouth alone, imagine what he can do when we come to him in humility. When we come to him confessing our brokenness, our, our sin, confessing those things and repenting to those. The thing about Jesus is that his grace is available to all who come to him freely. He's paid all sins, past, present, and future. He's able to take the mess of our lives and turn it into something beautiful. And he's not just available to the people who have their lives together. If you are here this morning and you have never made a commitment to follow Christ, a a commitment to know Christ and to pursue Christ, he stands ready and eager to to open you uh, into, into his li- bring you into his life to, to forgive you. All you have to do is just believe on him. Confess your sins to him, and you are immediately saved. There's nothing that you have to do. If you want to learn more about this, I'd love to take you out for coffee, hear what's going on, and, and talk about that in more detail. If you're here this morning, and you have secret hidden sin, and you are feeling the weight and the burden of this, of, of this lifestyle, and you are tired, you are worn out, there's hope, there's freedom for you. As David says, pray to the Lord, acknowledge your sin, confess your sins, and you will be forgiven. Maybe some of you are thinking that the shame of holding on to the sin is greater than, than if it were exposed. If you own your sin, if you acknowledge it, you confess it, you own your sin, the ramifications, the destruction in your life is going to be far less than if the sin is exposed on its own. And God offers us this freedom from this sin. But David finishes Psalm 32 with a response for those who have been forgiven. In verse 11, he says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The key mark of a forgiven life is a life full of abundant joy. We rejoice knowing that our sin is paid for in full by Jesus at the cross. In just a few moments, our band is going to start playing and we're going to be singing a song remembering specific uh, ways that God has delivered sin. And for you, I want to encourage you just to stop and to reflect on God's specific ways that he has redeemed you from sin. Spend time as we're singing, thanking him for the forgiveness of your sins. But when we get to the bridge of the song, 
Oh, where we are singing, oh, praise the one who paid it all. I want you to sing as loud as you can. The joyful person rejoices and shouts for joy at what God has done in his life. So I love this command to shout for joy. Part of it means that we are loudly declaring what God has done in our life. Are you doing that? Are you telling people what God has done in your life through the redemption and forgiveness of your sins? Are you proclaiming to yourself and to others the goodness of God in his forgiveness to you? If you're not, I want to encourage you to find ways to talk about what the Lord has done through the forgiveness of sins. If you don't know how to start the conversation, find joyful people and ask them, How have you experienced God's goodness through his forgiveness? The thing about being forgiven, it doesn't mean that the consequences of our sinful actions are gone, that they magically go away. But what it does mean is that the shame and the cost of our sin is taken away immediately. We are righteous not because of our own works, but because of Christ's work. We are sinless not because we live a good life, but because of the sinlessness that Christ has given us. This is why Psalm 32 is good news for sinners. We have a way out of oppression from sin through our Lord Jesus Christ. Confession of sin leads to a joyful life in Christ.